0: Hey, it's good to be with you guys this morning. Hope everybody's doing well, enjoying the summer. Uh, Most of you probably know who I am. For those of you who are in that category, it's great to be with you. Uh, My name is uh, Will. For those of you who don't, Uh, I'm a church planting resident here at Sojourn, and we're now focusing a lot of attention in the area where the Lord has called us to plant a church out in Manassas. The name of our church is New City Fellowship, Um, and the Lord is doing some really cool stuff out there. We're really excited to Uh, watch all of that happen. Uh, But honestly, I'm equally excited to be back here with family this morning and to be able to share out of God's Word with you. So it's great to be with you all. Uh, If you are new to Sojourn altogether, let me give you a special welcome. Uh, Not sure if you're just moving in the area and you found the church online, or uh, maybe you don't have a church background at all and all of this is even a little bit uncomfortable for you. Um, Many of us have been in that same spot, and uh, just want to let you know that we're glad that you're here. Um, And that the Lord himself might have something very uh, particular to to speak into your life this morning. And So it's good to be with you all. Let me invite you guys to turn over to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 43 this morning. We've been walking through Jesus' sermon uh, known as the Sermon on the Mount. We've been working through chapter 5 and this morning we'll be closing out uh, one major section of the sermon. And it starts in verse 43. So let me invite you to read along with me. The Lord says to us this morning that you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you only love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more have you done than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning in the name of Jesus, our Savior, the only one who even gives us access to even be able to speak to you. Lord, I pray that you would draw near to us and meet us in this moment. I remember turning the news on this Friday And just this accumulation of events all over the world and chaos and destruction and darkness. And just feeling, perhaps in a way that I haven't felt in a very long time, that this world is so unstable. And so many of the things that we hope in and trust in are simply going to break apart. Maybe that's why some people are here this morning. They are beginning to recognize that. But we have, Lord, we have one that is sure and steady in the midst of everything. And to him we look this morning, the rock of our salvation, the unchanging God, the God who is sovereign over all and lets nothing happen beyond his control. We come to you this morning, Lord, as our world is falling apart, we come to you to to hold us together where even our own individual lives are falling apart because of our own foolish decisions and sin, we come to you, Lord, to be made whole. So I pray, God, that you would speak to us this morning. This is an impossible uh, command that you've laid before us on most occasions, but even after these past couple weeks, all of the enmity that we've experienced makes it even, even more, the, the realness of how difficult this is, is even more real to us than ever. But this is what you've called us to. This is the word that you've spoken to your disciples, your followers. And so I pray that you would enable us now to follow it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have a pretty uh, gnarly command before us this morning, and we're going to look at that in in just a little bit. But I want to set up a little bit of context that I think will be helpful for us to think about uh, what Jesus is calling us to this morning. I was uh, a little over a week ago, took my kids, I have a three-year-old and a four-year-old and a four-month-old, but she w- just hang out on the side. We took them to a water park out where we live, and uh, we drove there. The kids are really excited. They're going to be able to get, uh, you know, wet. It was a really hot day. Uh, we get out of the car, we go up, we pay, and they see this water park. It's filled with these enormous sea creatures that you can crawl on and slide down into the water. Other water slides that jet you into the water really fast. They've even got cannons that you can shoot the other kids with with the water in this water park. It's an awesome park. So we, uh, we get there, we uh, get them into their bathing suit, we do a baptism of sunscreen all over them, get them ready to go. They're filled with excitement and anticipation. They're about to go get in the water and they hear the most disappointing sound that you can ever hear when you go to a water park, and it is the collective whistle from the lifeguards signaling it's time for for break. It's time for what they call adult swim. So all of that anticipation and excitement comes crashing down, and for the next uh, 15 to 20 minutes, however long adult swim is, I have my kids asking me, Dad, why can't we get into the water? To which my response is, honestly, I have no idea because I think this is the silliest rule that's ever been made in the realm of aquatics. It, it seems meaningless. It seems arbitrary. I even went online to see why this adult swim break exists and they explained that the purpose of it was so that kids wouldn't get overly ex- exhausted, to which I respond, they must not know anything about parenting because my whole aim when I take my kids to a place like that is so they will get overly exhausted... <laughs> So later that night, they'll go to bed without two hours of negotiating and playing, and they'll just be out. And so this rule seems meaningless. It seems empty. What's the point? It's right up there with the rule that we're not allowed to have our seats back one inch when we're taking off or uh, landing on an airplane. It seems hollow. But here's here's the problem. Here's, Here's where I'm going with it. I think that for many of us, when we hear the commands of God, our natural response is not one of acceptance and amen and yes. Our natural response is, why? What's the point? Is this just an empty way to control me, to manipulate me, to, to force me to live a way that I wouldn't normally want to live? And our natural response is to want to go around God's command, missing the ultimate point. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is going to blow that idea out of the water. If you look down at the end of this section that we just read, Jesus says, You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, when we hear that, you probably sense like this is some impossible command, uh, this like sinless perfection that we could never arrive at on our own. And this passage does involve sinlessness, but that's not the heart of it. Because the word used here is the Greek word telos. And if you're a vocabulary buzz, you know that the word telos is where we get the word telology, which is the study of design or purpose, which shows us that the heart of God's commandments and rules over our lives are not meaningless. They're not empty. They're not arbitrary. The aim of them is to bring us in to the design that he's made us to be. The heart of God's commands, the heart of of, of him giving rules, difficult rules, like we just read this morning, is so that we would walk in our design. Telos is the end for which you were created. And he's created us, friends, to be people who exemplify the character of our Heavenly Father. That is the reason we exist, as people made in his image, to reflect his character and his makeup to the world that we find ourselves in. Now, there was a problem in Jesus' day where a lot of commandments were going on out, or out there, were being thrown out. And the problem with them was that they were sort of half commands. They were far short of leading people into the design that God had made them to be. And so Jesus starts this section that we've been in by saying, Listen, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. I've actually come to fulfill it, I've come to be the ideal human. The the person that was made in God's image image and properly reflects him in the world. That's the reason that I've come. But you've got all these teachers out there giving you these empty commands. For example, all they'll say is, don't commit adultery. But you weren't made just to not commit adultery. You were made to be people who cherish them and not even let lust exist in your heart, consuming them and making them an item to be had. There's people saying, don't, uh, don't murder. As long as you don't murder, you're good. But he's saying, hold on a second. No, you were made for mar- far more than that. The fulfillment of that command is that you wouldn't even let anger and rage exist in your heart. And so the heart of Jesus' command to us this morning is that we would be the kind of people who operate in the way that he's designed us to be. And then that lands us on this command to love. And the problem in Jesus' day is that there was a command going, on, going around out there that, that didn't uh, guide people into the love that God had designed them to operate in, and that leads us there this morning. And what I want to talk to you in relation about, relationship to this command is really three things. The first thing I want to look at is this incomplete, this, this sort of half standard of love that was going around in Jesus' day and is popular even in our own. And then secondly, I want to look at complete love, what the love that we were designed to operate in looks like. And then lastly, I want to see these things play out in the example of Jesus himself. So we'll look together first at this incomplete love that was working in Jesus' day. Uh, you'll see at the beginning, he says, you have heard it was said uh, that you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. And this was the incomplete love that was taught by many of the teachers in Jesus' day and was commonly held by the Jews. And that's, that was its summary. If you went to a religious leader and asked them, how has God called us to love? This would be the response. Love your friends and family, hate your enemies. The problem is that there are no enemies, uh, or the problem, I'm sorry, is from Leviticus 19 is where they got this idea that we should love our friends and hate our enemies, and this is what it said. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But the problem with that is that there's nothing listed here about enemies at all. It was put on as an addition and it was commonly held. And so you had teachers who were going around saying that, that you, you, love looks like loving your neighbors, your family, and your friends and hating your enemies, those out on the outside, those who would seek to cause us harm. And I love Jesus's response to this. He says, you think you're some shining example of love because you love your friends and hate your enemies? What's the big deal about that? You've got people who are patting themselves on the back because they love their friends and hate their enemy and he puts them in their place by giving them a couple examples from his own society. If you look in verse 46, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Now we've talked about tax collectors in here before and we've said that these aren't comparable to our modern day H&R block representatives or anything like that. These were actually some of the darkest people in Jesus' day. Uh, These were people who were linking up with the Roman government to oppress God's people and use the oppression that was taking place for personal gain. And so they knew the people, they knew the lay of the land, they would go out and collect taxes on behalf of the Roman government, take some off the top for themselves, and use really nasty and mean ways to get that money from people. And Jesus points to them in saying, by, in saying essentially the most unloving people in your society meet your standard of love without, without any problem. Even tax collectors love like this. Why would you applaud yourselves that you love your friends and hate your enemies when some of the cruelest and demeaning people do it at ease? And then he gives another example. He says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? The Gentiles were those outside the people of Israel who didn't have God's revelation and law. And Jesus is saying you applaud yourselves because you greet and welcome your friends and family and those who do good to you, but Gentiles who don't have God's law do exactly the same thing without any instruction. This type of incomplete love is the natural human response to really any relational interaction. Like, my children don't need any help in carrying this type of love out. When I give them dessert, they love me, they, they, they welcome me, they, they greet me, they're happy with me. When I say they can't have their dessert before dinner and cause such an evil injustice over them, their response is not, Dad, you've caused great harm to me, but our Father in heaven sends the rain on the just and the unjust, so I'll find it within my heart to forgive you and to love you, even though you've done this evil to me. No, that's never their response when you do something unkind or something that they don't appreciate. They say, we don't like you, get out of here, we want mom. <laughs> this, this teaching on loving your neighbor and hating your enemy is the natural human response to all relationships, regardless of where you are in the world, regardless of how you were raised, we obey this command quite naturally. And if we boil it down to its essence, what are we really saying when we love those Who love us. All we're really saying is that we love ourselves. We love only those who love you. All you've proven is that you love yourself. Greeting those who greet you and blessing those who bless you and praying only for those who wish you well really at the end of the day is pretty self serving when you think about it. And this kind of love that's easy, that doesn't cost anything, that's easily shaken or lost. It doesn't, it doesn't require that we give of ourselves. It's offered only when benefit is given in return to us. And at the end of the day, we were designed, our telos is for a far stronger, far more uh, powerful love than this. And so let's look secondly then at complete love. Jesus says, so you can love your neighbors and hate your enemies, big deal. Let's talk about the kind of love that you were made to operate in. It's a love that's costly. It gives of itself for others. It's sacrificial. It isn't easily broken. It's the kind of love that not only loves our friends, but even reaches our enemies. You could describe the quality of love by how far it reaches, right? So if you have a love that reaches your friends and family, that's, that's pretty short-lived love. Maybe you could take it a step further and apply it to those who you would naturally feel pretty neutral towards, just strangers that you don't feel one way good or bad about at all. But Jesus is saying the love that we should possess doesn't just stop there. The love we have is so far-reaching and so strong that it reaches our friends and family, continues to those who we would feel neutral about, and then extends all the way to people who naturally hate us and would wish to do us harm. Now, what does he mean by love, though, when he says that? I mean, this can be a little bit vague sounding. You could see someone saying, sure, I love all people, but that doesn't mean I have to like them. Or something like, uh, in theory, I love all people because we're all created equal, but practically speaking, there's no real actual tangible evidence that they're loving anyone at all. It just exists in their mind. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about a love that only exists theoretically, but one that actively seeks the good of those with whom we're enemies. And to give an example of what he means by it, he says, you want to see this kind of love playing out? All you have to do is open up your phone and go to your weather app. And as you look on the forecast, you see days that are sunny and days that are rainy. Two elements that are essential for really any human survival flourishing or survival at all. They're essential for our food. And he says, our Heavenly Father offers these acts of goodwill and kindness indiscriminately. He offers it to his people who love him, and he offers it freely to those who hate him and want nothing to do with him. He actively seeks the well-being of people who are naturally his enemies. And then in this call to love one's enemies is, is, is a genuine desire for their well-being. He says for this same teaching in Luke's gospel, in Luke six twenty seven, 27, uh, I say to you, love your enemies. Do good. There's an action in there. Do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So this is far more than a simply, simply a call to love our enemy, but, but one, uh, to love them in such a way where we seek their good. To bless someone is to desire their well-being and to make that request known before God. This is to ask that our enemies wouldn't suffer as we feel they deserve, but that they would flourish, be healthy, even happy. That's the kind of love that he's called us to, not one that just exists theoretically, but actively seeks the good and well-being of our enemies. But we could ask the question then, well, who is my enemy? Who is Jesus talking about that this applies to? And naturally, when I hear the word enemy, I, I think of uh, in terms of war. So I think of a, a national enemy or a military enemy or a political enemy. But I want to start by saying it doesn't have to be that narrow. It, it can apply to, to a number of other situations. We can simply say that an enemy is anyone with which we experience animosity. Someone you have strife or a conflict with. Someone that when you think of them, you experience within yourself a sense of anger and wrath or strong irritation. There's some of you in this room whose boss currently fits this description. Maybe it's a coworker. There are others, maybe it's a neighbor that's just really hard to live around. Maybe it's an old friend where something's gone awry and just the thought of them brings you irritation. If we're honest, there are some in here this morning whose spouse currently fits this description. And if you're engaged, you're saying, never, That would never would I describe my beloved husband or wife as an enemy. But this sense of frustration or anger or rage is actually a regular part of your marital experience right now. It might even apply to your spouse. It applies to, to some of these close uh, relationships, but, but it, just, it doesn't just stop there. And this is where it gets really difficult. There's a special focus in this passage on those who might... Uh, persecute us, particularly because we're Christians. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This even applies to groups like ISIS who want nothing more than our destruction and who hate us with every fiber in their being. This call to love and actively seek the well-being of people even applies to people like that. And this is where things get really difficult because I think for us Uh, As Americans, this type of enemy that is in that that type of category um, is becoming a much more up-close and personal reality. How in the world are we supposed to apply this kind of love to a guy who just drove a truck into a crowd filled with people killing 80-something and injuring scores of others? How in the world are we supposed to apply this command To that situation? How are we supposed to apply this to ISIS in light of the pure and utter evil that we see from them week after week? And honestly, not only how are we just supposed to love them, that seems impossible in and of itself, but loving our enemies in this way not only seems difficult, it even seems immoral, it seems unjust. How could we apply this kind of seeking of well-being for people who seem so wicked? And I couldn't hope to begin to ease that tension that we feel about that this morning. But I think if we look at the example of Jesus, we'll at least begin to, to have some help by looking at how he treated his enemies. And so let's look together at the example of Jesus in light of this impossible, even seemingly unjust command. If you still have your Bible open, turn over to Romans 5. I think it's going to help put some perspective on this for us. Starting in verse 6. Romans 5, 6. uh, I'm going to read through uh, verse, verse 10. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died, for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. So Paul just laid a pretty difficult indictment on every last one of us in this room. He just declared us to be enemies of God. There are no impartial people when it comes to our view of God. Sinful humans aren't simply neutral towards him. Naturally speaking, we actually hate him. And you may think to yourself, that can't be true because I've loved God as long as I can remember. But the reality is much of what we think of loving God is loving a picture of God that exists in our mind but is not the reality of who he truly is. In our sinful state, if the fullness of God was revealed to us before we had been (laughs) brought to life by God, every last one of us are enemies of God and we hate him. And if you want an example of that, the best picture of it is to consider what we did when God was sent to us in human form. When God came to his people, the people he created, the response was not one of acceptance. It wasn't even one of indifference. When, when God came to us in the person of Jesus, we collectively, our voice can be heard in the crowd saying, crucify him. When God came to us and revealed himself to us in Jesus, Our animosity towards him was so great that we sought to kill him. All of us are culpable in that. If we had been there, our voices would have joined with the rest of those yelling out, crucify him. All of us are culpable. So make no mistake about it. We all were once God's enemies. We were the worst of the worst. We rejected God and lived as rebels. We, in our sin, gave him no reason for kindness and every reason for wrath. I think one of the problems that we have in dealing with our enemies is failing to realize that we, as Christians, once were God's enemies. The problem of justice doesn't just exist out there with other people, but within each of us before a holy God. And once we realize that we were previously enemies deserving wrath, we're empowered to view our own enemies very differently. Why? Because. The the way you start loving your enemy is by getting rid of the notion that they deserve worse than you. The way we start to love our enemies is by getting rid of the notion that they deserve worse than us. Take the pain that we feel because of our enemies and all the ways that they've wronged us and multiply it by a million and that's the position that we're all in before God because of our sin. So we have to ask, what would the fitting response be for someone like this? What would the fitting response be for such an enemy? If you had power over such a wicked enemy, what, you, what would you do with that power? We would use all the power we had to destroy them. But Jesus, the king of the universe, rather than using his power to destroy his enemies, he set his power aside and let himself be destroyed by them. He allowed himself to be crushed by them so that his enemies could be forgiven. Think about it. How do we seek to overcome our enemies? We seek to destroy them. How did Jesus overcome his enemies? He let himself be destroyed by them so that they could be forgiven and set free. What marvelous love is offered to us in Jesus that he would even lay his life down his enemies. And as Paul is meditating on this love in this passage we just read in Romans 5, he's like grabbing for some experience in our human human day-to-day life that could paint even a small picture of it, and he simply can't do it. Because he says, from time to time, scarcely someone might die for a good person. Perhaps a first responder or someone who's a soldier might lay their life down for, for their friends or, or even for, for strangers who are part of their country. But for someone like this, someone who's caused them great harm, someone who's taken things from them that could never be returned back, someone who's culpable for unspeakable crimes, no one would ever lay their life down for someone like that. Yet the love of Jesus is so vast and so strong that he's even gone to this length to save his enemies. And the place that you see it perhaps more clearly than anywhere else in the life of Jesus is in one of the last prayers that he ever prayed. Remember the command, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? As Jesus is having Nails driven through his hands and is being put to death in the most excruciating way possible. The prayer that he offers to God isn't, God, vindicate me. God, save me. Father, deliver me. His prayer was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And Jesus can ask for forgiveness for such people because at the very moment that he's asking for forgiveness, the claims of justice that required their punishment are being satisfied. God isn't like us where we're angry over sin and injustice and then quickly move on with our lives. I don't know about you, when I turn on the news and see some new atrocity, I'm bothered by it for a few moments, but then a month, two months later, if we're honest, I think it's just out of sight, out of mind and and, and we move past it. But God isn't like that. God by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. And that's why we can have confidence that all the evil that we've seen in the world over the past few weeks will indeed have a just conclusion. All the evil in the world will either either meet justice in Jesus paying its penalty on the cross or it being paid out in full on Judgment Day. In the meantime, the Lord calls us to love our enemies to pray that they would trust in Jesus and that they would turn from their evil and that they would have all of their evil that they've committed paid through his cross. Because this is what complete love looks like. This is the kind of love that you and I were designed to operate in. One who doesn't um, just love those who love us or wish well of our enemies, but love that's so strong and so far-reaching that it seeks the well-being of those who hate us. We weren't designed for a weak, self-serving love that only loves those who benefit us. We were made to reflect this love of God that is so boundless and so vast and so eternal that it even reaches our enemies. So in closing, let me just talk about a couple practical things with you right now that I think will help us think about our enemies and take some steps towards all that the Lord's called us to this morning. The first is understanding that the, Lord, the Lord's design for us to love so fully and so comprehensively and unconditionally that we even love our enemies might change the way we view the people who are in our lives right now who we would describe as enemies. Hear me on this because this is really important. None of us would naturally want to have enmity with people. We would never want to put ourselves in a position where we purposely bring that sort of strife and conflict into our lives, but but, the Lord might be allowing the existence of an enemy in your life at this very moment because there's no other way to shape you into the kinds of people who love like him. You may have serious strife right now with your spouse, with a family member, with a coworker, with a boss or whoever, and, and you think of that strained relationship as something to get around, something to avoid, something to move past. However, the, the Lord may have this enemy in your life right now because he's using them in your life to build in you a stronger, more complete love. To put it simply, the Lord may be allowing enemies in your life right now because he wants to make you more like Jesus. You may be in a marriage right now and you just want out. It's been really difficult. And let me be clear, I'm not talking about abuse in this situation. If that's what's happening, then, then we need to have a separate discussion. But I'm just talking about, it's just a really hard moment. It's a really difficult spot that you're in right now. Constant conflict but how would you ever learn to to grow in your love and mature to have a love that resembles Christ if every single relationship in your life was constant ease and comfort? No, the the Lord loves us so much and desires us to be whole, to, to operate in the love that he's made us to operate in, that he's willing to put enemies in our life to grow and mature our love. So practically speaking, I think this can change the way that we view the people who the Lord has put in our life right now that we would otherwise prefer just to get around. I think there's intentionality that the Lord will use in our life in this way. But a simple and first step that we can take towards those that we would describe as enemies is simply to pray for them. That's a simple step that all of us can begin right now. And I think uh, the Lord uh, gives us this practical starting point in, in verse 44, uh, he says that we're to, to uh, pray for those who persecute us. I think this is very intentional because there's something about taking our enemy and uh, bringing them before the presence of God and, and um, not, uh, but it not only uh, seeks to bless them, but it even does a work in us when we pray for our enemies. When we pray for our enemies and we go before the Lord, we're reminded of God's mercy for us, his seeking of our good when we were far from him his love for us when no one else would, and we find our own hearts softening towards our enemies. And so simply, practically speaking, steps you can take towards this right now is simply to pray for our enemies, those difficult people in your life, to pray for ISIS, to pray for uh, the, the people who are committing these atrocities around the world, to make that a regular part of our lives. Pray for those who persecute you. In closing, let me say that the the commands of God were never meant to be for us meaningless rules or an empty attempt at controlling us, but they were made to, to bring us into the people that we were designed to be. Jesus closes this chapter by saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You were made to look like God, especially in our love, to love so strongly and so fully that we even love our enemies. This was the design, this is the blueprint that the Lord has given us to function in. But the reality is, at the end of the day, we could never do this on our own. We could never operate in all of the commands that he's laid out in this chapter for us, from lust to loving our enemies. Naturally speaking, we're all left incomplete and lacking. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to make us whole. He came to, to represent us before God. And, and the incredible news of the gospel is this. If you're in Christ right now, you are viewed as someone who's not only never committed adultery, but someone who's never even allowed lust to exist in your heart. For before the eyes of God, you're not viewed as someone who just uh, doesn't just love their friends and hates their enemies. You're viewed as someone who has always loved your enemies perfectly. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. And God views us through the lens of Jesus if we're in Christ. And that's the incredible news that we come to celebrate every morning when we take communion. On the last day when Jesus was about to be betrayed by Judas, Jesus took a piece of bread and he broke it. So as to symbolize what was going to happen to his body. So the one whole, the one complete, the one perfect human, Jesus was broken on our behalf so that we could be presented as whole before God. That's what we celebrate when we come to this table. And so this morning, I hope that you'll meditate on that and worship God in light of the fact that He's come to make us whole. Now, if you're not a Christian, I want to say to you, as we come forward to take communion, uh, to actually hang out in your seats. And that's not a weird way to make you feel left out or anything like that. But in coming to this table, what we're signaling is that our sin and our enmity with God has been removed, but the reality is if you're not a Christian, that, that you are still viewed as God's enemy in your sin, in your rebellion against him. There isn't a friendship that exists there, but it's offered to you today. Jesus offers his hand to you today to be reconciled to your creator, to be set free from all your sin, to be forgiven and made new. And how you do that is you repent of your sin, repent and turn from the life of living without God and believing that Jesus died on your behalf so that you could be forgiven and believing that God raised him from the dead so that you could have newness of life. And if what I'm saying doesn't make sense to you, but you want to talk about it anymore, please come talk to me or someone after. We'd be happy to talk about that with you and pray with you. So just hang out in your seats during this time and even allow this time to, to pray uh, for yourself before the Lord. And for the rest of us, you guys can come forward with your, when you're ready. We've got two tables in the back and two tables in the front. And let's come forward and celebrate that God has put away the enmity that once existed between us and Him through sending His Son to die on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord, we all were once enemies and have no... Um, we're hopeless, could never hope to come to a table of fellowship with you, a table of breaking bread and experiencing unity and, and, and peace and reconciliation. But through your death, through the death of your own perfect Son, you've set us free and you've forgiven us and you've satisfied the claims of justice over our lives and you've made us whole. So Lord, we come to you now as we take this meal pray for those who don't know you. I pray that you would convict them by the power of your spirit in this moment. There's nothing I can say to do that. I pray that you would draw them home to you this morning. Lord, we pray for our enemies. We pray for ISIS. We pray for those who wish to destroy us. We pray that you would bring them to turn from their sin and to trust in Jesus as their only hope. We pray for those who would persecute us and who mock us and belittle us because we're Christians. We pray that you would draw such people to yourself. Lord, help us where we lack love for our enemies. Help us to love holistically with the kind of love that you've designed us to operate in. Lord, we thank you that you loved us while we were still enemies and that through your death you've made us whole. We pray all this together now in Jesus' name. Amen.